0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And uh, let me just take a a brief moment as you're turning there to uh, say thanks to Valentine for preaching last week. If you were here, uh, you know, he did a great job of working through Galatians uh, chapter Five, and so wherever Valentine is, thank you for the hard work of serving us um, last week. Okay, uh, Mark eleven is where we are, and let me kind of set up this passage by uh, kind of reorienting us to the to the book of Mark. So Mark, the Gospel of Mark has sixteen chapters, and all of those chapters are primarily about one person. His name is Jesus, right This is the point of, of the whole Gospel of Mark. but it's interesting to note that of those sixteen chapters Six of those chapters, chapters 11 through 16, six of those chapters deal with the last seven days of Jesus's life. Now, that's interesting when you think about 16 chapters to to take the life of Jesus, and six of those, a huge portion, portion, settles in over these seven days, his last seven days, a Sunday through kind of a Saturday into Resurrection Sunday. Six chapters deal with that. Now, the Gospel of Mark is showing us something there, that those last seven days are important, very important. I think it would be fair to say it this way, that the last seven days of Jesus' life are the most important seven days in the history of the universe. They're that important. Maybe you can think of it this way. It's the epicenter of redemptive history is this seven-day period. All the Old Testament is pointing forward and anticipating these seven days. The rest of the New Testament is looking back and pointing us back to and reminding us of these seven days. So this is maybe what you could think of biblically as prime biblical real estate that we're working through for the next several months. This is some important chapters that we're kind of navigating. Now, a few weeks ago, Dan started the the last seven days, starting in chapter 11, Dan opened up and, and talked about Sunday. The last seven days of his life starts on Sunday, and Dan worked through this triumphal entry, the first 11 verses of chapter 11, where Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and the crowd, who is still really confused as to who Jesus is, the crowd is going crazy for Jesus. And when the crowds settle, I want you to look at Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Here's what happens on that Sunday when the crowds settle down. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem, and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late he went out to bethany with the 12 so here's what happens on sunday jesus shows up crowd is going crazy the crowd settle down and the first thing jesus does is walk into jerusalem and into the temple and he looks around and he observes the spiritual condition of the people of israel And what he sees in the spiritual condition of the people of Israel in the temple is that there's all of this religious activity going on, all of this religious stuff happening, but it is void of the substance. It is void of hearts that are actually worshiping God and praising Jesus and loving Jesus. They've got all the religious external things happening, but they're missing the substance. They're missing the inner reality of a heart changed and transformed by God. Now, what Jesus saw on that Sunday sets up what happens on Monday. And Monday starts in verse 12. So in verse 11, Jesus observes the temple. He does nothing. He leaves the temple, goes back to Bethany with the disciples, and and rests on Sunday night. And on Monday, he wakes up and verse 12 goes down. Now, I want you to think about the the, the passage that we're gonna be dealing with, verses 12 through 25 in three scenes. Here are the three scenes. Scene number one is on Monday morning. Jesus wakes up after observing life in the temple and he interacts with a fig tree, curses this fig tree. Scene two is going to be Monday afternoon. After they get into Jerusalem, Jesus goes into the temple and he wrecks shop in the temple. This is a Jesus that we aren't overly familiar with. He's turning over tables That Jesus comes out, and then he goes back home to Bethany on Monday night, and then he comes back to Jerusalem on Tuesday morning and interacts with the same fig tree they they dealt with on Monday morning. Those are the three scenes we're going to work through this morning. Now, let me encourage you to do something. Um, Rather than taking notes this morning, why don't you just take a step back, like lay down notes, pencils, paper, all of that, And why don't you just look at the Bible this morning and allow God to speak to you without, like, trying to take notes. It's going to be hard to take notes. There's really not a lot to take notes about this morning. So I'd love for you just to to sit back. You know, the purpose of preaching is to leave an impression in the moment. And I want to make sure that happens. And I don't want you to be distracted by trying to write miscellaneous stuff down. Just sit back, Bible in hand, right before you, and, and let's work through these three scenes together. So we start in scene number one. Scene number one is Monday morning. Jesus is back on his way to Jerusalem. And this is where you pick it up in verse 12 of Mark 11. Mark 11 verse 12 says this. On the following day, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it, something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to this fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Strong words to a fig tree. And his disciples heard it. Okay, so I, I want to. you try to picture, kind of put yourself in the story and see what's going on here. Jesus is hungry. It's Monday morning. He's just kind of done the whole temple observation thing, seeing the spiritual kind of condition of the people on Sunday. It's Monday. They're walking back to Jerusalem, and he's hungry, and he sees a fig tree. And when he looks at the fig tree from a distance, you would, you would swear that the fig tree would have to have figs on it. It looks so good externally. There's leaves everywhere. It looks It looks great. But upon further inspection, when he goes up to the fig tree and looks at it, as he wipes away the leaves, looking for figs, here's the problem. There are no figs on the tree. And so in verse 14, in light of looking great, the appearance is great, but there being no figs in verse 14, Jesus applies some verbal herbicide. He curses this tree and it dies. Curses it. In light of... All of this leafy stuff, but no figs, he is showing his displeasure of that. Okay, so the question is, what in the world is going on here? Especially in light of verse 13. Look at the end of verse 13. I think it's just an interesting little parenthetical note here where it says, for it was not, it was not even the season for figs. So, I mean, it seems kind of odd on the surface that Jesus is hungry. He goes to a leafy-looking fig tree that he's wanting figs from, and it's not the season for figs, and it doesn't have figs, and he curses it. That seems weird. So let me just try to explain what's going on here. Throughout Mark's gospel, he's got all of these little parenthetical explanations like this. And this one in particular is meant to do something very specific. That little parenthetical note of he comes to the fig tree, Wanting figs, but there's no figs because it's not the season for figs. It's showing us, it's pointing us past what is being talked about, namely fig trees, to what it's symbolizing. Namely, the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. So hear that. What that last little note of verse 13 is doing, it's raising our eyes above the present little circumstance of a fig tree without figs. And it's saying, lift your eyes above that. Let this be a picture for you now of what the spiritual, spiritual condition of the people of Israel is like. So let me just say this as clearly as I can here. The point of these couple of verses here, 12, 13, and 14, is not to give you kind of an episode of what happens when Jesus gets hungry, right? He gets testy and things get cursed. That is, that's not the point of the passage, the point of the passage is Jesus is saying, Look at this fig tree. Do you see this fig tree? And this one in particular is leafy. It has the external appearances that there would have to be fruit on it. But it's got no fruit. And this particular fig tree is a perfect reminder and picture of the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. And here is the condition of the people of Israel. Here's their spiritual condition. They have all of these religious looking leaves going in their lives all of these religious activities all of this religious stuff happening but something's wrong something is 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 missing namely they are missing a deep genuine love of god they have all of these external things happening up here but it's void of the substance They do not have changed hearts. They haven't been rescued by grace. There is no worship and love of Jesus in their life. This is the spiritual condition that he is zeroing in on. And Jesus, in light of their spiritual condition, says, this is how I feel about it. I am going to to curse this tree as a picture of what it's going to look like for me to curse the people of Israel if they persist in their hardness and unbelief. If they persist in their religiosity, their religious external activities apart from a heart who actually loves me. This is how I feel about it. And it's also a picture of what will ultimately happen for every man and woman who who refuses to receive and to believe, refuses to allow their hearts to be changed by grace. It's a picture of what Jesus will do ultimately to every man or woman who rejects him. Ultimately, they're going to be just like this this fig tree. They're going to wither to the root for all eternity. This is what's happening here. This is is what he's showing us. All of these religious looking things without the heart. Now, I want to take a moment to apply this. This is a really important moment for this morning in the room. Because I need you to get a sense of how prevalent this is among us. Not just back then. But among us, a lot of religious leaves, a lot of religious activities without a heart that has been changed by God. And maybe I could say it this way. Of all the places for a Christian to live in the year 2014, I am convinced that one of the most spiritually dangerous places for you to call home is Dallas, Texas. It was interesting, several years ago, Christianity Today did an article on Dallas, and it was really kind of an article about the Bible Belt, culture, that whole thing. And do you know what it called Dallas in that article? The buckle of the Bible Belt. That's your home, right? And so now, now before I just gloss over that, I, I want to first say that there's a lot of great things that come along with that. There's a lot of wonderful things that are attached to that. But at the same time, there are a lot of very dangerous things attached to that. And let me sit on that side, the dangerous side, for a moment. Here's what makes our culture so dangerous. Is there are thousands and thousands of people this morning in our area that are going to be in church. And for so many of those people, they're not in church because they have a genuine love for Jesus. They're in church because culturally it's the thing that people do. It's like what your family does, it's what your friends do, it's what your coworkers do, it's what your brothers and sisters do. So, so it's what you do. It's what they do. It's what culture does around this. But I want you to get a sense of that. That's the culture you live in. We live in a culture that has a lot of external religious things happening. Like there's a lot of churches. There's a lot of people who fill a lot of churches. Those churches are doing a lot of things. The people who fill those churches are doing a lot of religious looking things, religious activities. They're in church this morning, Bible in hand, family in tow, kids in ministries getting taught, them worshiping and listening to preaching and all of these things, even serving. That They would say the token prayer before meals. They've got their Bible on their nightstand. All of those things are happening. All the religious external things are there. The religious activities, the religious leaves, they're present everywhere. But what is so lacking in our culture is a genuine love for Jesus underneath all of that. That's that's the issue. And what is so fearful for me, this is literally what kept me up last night thinking about this and just praying for us, is if we're not careful in the midst of all of these, you know, religious trappings and religious activities that are so prevalent in our culture, without a heart that loves Jesus underneath them, if we're not careful, we are actually going to be seduced into thinking that that's what Christianity is. And it's not. It's not. Jesus here is saying, Religious activity without the fruit of faith in the middle of it, the fruit of a genuine love for Jesus at the heart of it. This is how I feel about it. This is my displeasure. I'm looking at the fig tree who will eventually be people. It's the picture of people. And I am saying, no one will ever eat fruit from you again. That's how I feel about it. That's the sort of disdain that I have for that. And the problem is that is what passes for Christianity in our culture. And if you're not careful, you're going to believe that. You know, in in some ways, it's exactly what Jesus is addressing in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, the church in Sardis, when he looks at them and says, Hey, listen, church, I know your works. I know you have a reputation for good things, but here is the problem you are dead. You've got all of these religious things going but you're dead on the inside. There is no spiritual life. You've got all of this leafy activity going, but there is no life underneath it. That's what he's addressing. Now, let me just just press this one step further. I want you to see in this passage that Jesus is not primarily addressing tax collectors, kind of the prototype of bad in the Bible. He's He's not addressing that the person that you're having to pull out of the bar. He's not addressing the person who actually knows they're not saved. He is addressing people in their culture who are the church folk. In our culture, it's the people who are showing up at church this morning. That's who he's addressing. And he's saying, here's the problem. If you're not careful... On that day when accounts are going to be settled, when you stand before God, if you're not careful, you're going to be seduced into believing that God cares most about your religious leaves, your religious activities. But he doesn't. On that day, here's what's going to happen. He's going to wipe, you know, wipe away the religious leaves. He's going to peer right through all of those religious leaves, and he is going to look right directly at your heart. And here's what he is going to be looking for the fruit of faith growing there. Like a heart that actually loves Jesus, a heart that actually worships Jesus, a heart that desires Jesus. And he's saying, listen, if, if that's you on the last day, if you're the person who is leafy, you've got all the religious activity, but you don't, have a, you don't have a heart that's been changed and rescued and saved and reoriented around Jesus and a love for Jesus. If you don't have that on the last day, your fate is gonna be the fate of the fig tree. That's gonna be your fate. Now, I can't describe the angst that I feel about brothers and sisters in this room to wrestle through this. Because this, he is talking to people just like us in our culture who would appear on a tr- like at a church just like this on a Sunday morning. We are who he is talking about here. M- maybe I could say it this way. That the problem in our culture is that the, the prevalent view, the prevailing view of what it means to be a Christian goes something like this. At some point in your past, you have said a prayer At some point in your past, you have walked down an aisle. You have filled out a card. You have had some sort of a moment at at some point in your past where something like that has happened with or without a genuine love of Jesus. That's the prevailing picture of Christianity in our culture. But that is not the Bible's picture of Christianity. See, the Bible's picture of what it means to be a Christian, I think you could summarize it in Psalms 42.1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after God. That's a Christian. Someone who behind all the religious activity has a deep and abiding and flourishing and growing love of Jesus in their life. Now let me just take a moment to ask the question in the room. Is that you? Now seriously, just be honest with yourself. Because you can lie to yourself on this all day long. You can pretend all day long. But I'm just telling you, there are eternal ramifications for you pretending in this question. Like When you push the leaves aside, all the activity aside in your life, and you take a good, honest look at your heart, is there a genuine love for Jesus there? That's the question. That's what Jesus is looking for. And we would do well this morning if we would consider that about our own heart. That's scene one. Jesus addressing the religious activity void of the substance of a love and a faith and a trust and a hope in him. Now, here is scene two. Scene two is in the temple. You pick it up in verse 15. Now, what happens in the temple is a play out of what happens with the fig tree. So, so think about this. The fig tree is the picture of leaves without fruit. All this religious activity without the fruit of a deep, genuine love of Jesus in the heart of the people of Israel. Now, what you're going to see play out in the temple is one expression of what that looks like in life. Like when you have all the religious activity going on without a heart that's been changed and transformed and actually loves Jesus, this is one expression of that. This is what it looks like. This is what Jesus saw in the temple to lead him to curse the fig tree. And here's how I could summarize it. This fruitlessness, this leaves without fruit, was expressed through trivializing God. This is what's going down in the temple. This is what the people of Israel are doing in the temple. So let me kind of read the passage and and work through this with you. So look at verse 15. Here is is the picture of, of the people of Israel trivializing God in the midst of their religious activity without a heart for God. Here's how that shows up. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and Jesus entered the temple. Now just watch at how harshly Jesus, how hard and harshly Jesus deals with the people in the temple. He entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So let me try to answer the question, why is it that Jesus is so upset in this moment? Now to understand that, we first have to get kind of a grip on the place the temple had in first century Jewish life, and really all of Old Testament Jewish life, the importance of the temple. Now, there is no sort of cultural reference point that I could give you to look to in American culture that would give you a sense of the sort of place and priority of the temple in, in Jewish life. It would be like some sort of a combination. If you could picture the White House, the Pentagon, and the the largest and most influential church in America all combined into one place, that might give you the feeling of of the sort of place that the temple would have. The temple was the centerpiece of Jewish life. The, The centerpiece. So let me give you this warning here in this passage. Don't equate the temple to the New Testament church. It's not the New Testament church. Ironically, think about this. Think about how the temple is fulfilled in Christians now. The, the Bible says now that if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you, that in a real sense, you are now the temple of God. So the temple of God is not an equivalent to a New Testament church. So don't try to like make these weird comparisons here. But here, if just to summarize, here is, here is what the, the temple was for the people of Israel and the people of God in the Old Testament. It was the place for the people of God to meet with God. It's where the presence of God showed itself among the people of Israel. Now, I want you to close your eyes for a moment, and I want you to put yourself into the shoes of Jesus as he walks into Jerusalem on this Monday afternoon. Put yourself in the place here. Just close your eyes. I want you to use your imagination, and for you to just put yourself into the sights and sounds of what he might be seeing and smelling and and thinking in this moment. So, so you're Jesus, and you, and you walk into Jerusalem, and you're, you're there in Passover. And, and during Passover, there would be two over 2 million pilgrims all converge on Jerusalem. So, so when you walk into Jerusalem, it is energetic. There is, a, there is an electricity to the air. There is a buzz to the air. It's full of people and full of life and full of things happening. And you enter into Jerusalem among this crowd of people. And you, along with the two million pilgrims, begin to move toward the temple. And you finally make it there. And you're jostling kind of for position among all of these two million people, all heading in this direction. And you get there and you begin to work up the steps along with this massive crowd of people. I mean, you're having to weave through this crowd, this line, as you work your way up the steps to the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles would be a a courtyard that was roughly 500 yards long by a couple of hundred yards wide. It was a massive courtyard. And by the time you you walk up to these steps and you get to the court of the Gentiles, it was the court where the Gentiles could come. Non-Jewish people could come and see and meet God. It was the court for the nations to meet God. When you finally get to that step where you can make visual contact with the court of the Gentiles, what you see has nothing to do with meeting God. What you see is a religious circus going on. In this court of the Gentiles, you have people and animals packed into it. Hustle and bustle everywhere. You you look over to the right and you see these money changers sitting at their tables with this long line of people in front of them. And according to Exodus 30, people had to convert their likely Roman currency into um, a a currency that could pay the temple tax. And so these money changers are, are changing money all the while probably at a very unfair rate. And so you look at these money changes and all this commerce going on, and then you look at all of these animals, I mean, just wall to wall, packed into this court of the Gentiles. Josephus, an early church historian, he estimated that in one year, there would be a quarter of a million lambs slain during the Passover week, that season. A quarter of a million. So you've got all of these animals packed into this court of the Gentiles, all of this, this Commerce going on, they're they're buying and they're selling these animals, all of this stuff, money changers, doing their thing. I love how one commentator, he says it. He says, "Here, here was the scene when Jesus stepped into the court of the Gentiles. The noise in this court of the Gentiles was terrific. Merchants shouted from their stalls to the customers, and noisy, haggling, pushy pilgrims jostled one another for position. The incredible noise was heightened by the constant bawling of livestock. The aroma of the livestock accentuated by the enclosure made it like a county fair and the stock exchange all rolled into one. And mingled in with that, many people in Jerusalem, although it was prohibited, had made the court of the Gentiles a pass-through. So to get from one side of Jerusalem to the other, instead of walking around the temple, they would cut right through the temple. No concern for meeting God, only for a shortcut to get where they wanted to go. Okay, now look up at me. That's what Jesus saw when he stepped up into the court of the Gentiles. Rather... Rather than a place of holy excitement and awe and wonder that maybe, just maybe, we would get a jaw-dropping glimpse of the presence of God. Rather than that, rather than a meeting place with God, it had turned into a place, like a marketplace, a place of commerce. A place where everything but that was happening. Where God was trivialized, where he was pushed down, insignificant. He was an afterthought to everyone in the marketplace. I love how one commentator described this. He said what Jesus saw was a monstrous desecration of holy ground. That's what he saw. Now, let me just go back and give you some Old Testament pictures of the temple. Like the sort of things that would happen in the temple. In our Bible reading plan this last week, ironically, we read through 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And in 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon has just built the temple and he's praying to dedicate the temple. And watch what happens in 2 Chronicles 7, the first three verses. Here's how the Bible describes it. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, listen to what happened. This is the same temple. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement. And they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. That's what's supposed to happen in the temple. Like maybe you can think of it in terms of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is mourning the death of King Uzziah and he goes to the temple and on that day in Isaiah chapter 6, he gets a glimpse of God. And what he sees on that day in the temple is this, this view of God where he is high and lifted up. He is on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's this idea of the beauty of the Lord. He is the sum of all things desirable and his beauty totally overpowered everything in that moment. And in the temple, Isaiah saw these these angels, these seraphim. They were circling around Jesus, and they were screaming at the top of their lungs, this is the Lord, holy, holy, holy is his name, the Lord Almighty. And it says that that the pillars and the foundations of the temple began to shake and to sway and to shudder, and the presence of the Lord filled the temple with smoke. And in that moment, Isaiah lost it. He was wrecked by the presence of God. In response, he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That is what's supposed to happen in the temple. But rather than that, you've got this, where God is an afterthought to him this massive, huge reality that is God and the presence of God meeting with his people has been overcome by a marketplace. Rather than God being center stage, he is trivialized. He is pushed down. He is insignificant to everyone in the court of the Gentiles. And that's why Jesus comes out with, with fury. This is why he is turning over tables. Now think about the big picture here. The big picture is Jesus is addressing the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. Here is their condition. They've got all of this religious activity, but no heart that's worshiping Jesus. No heart that's loving God. God is an afterthought. Here's how, here's how that fruitlessness, all of these leaves without the core, without the substance, here is how that is showing itself. It's showing itself in a God who is just smashed down and really small. He's just an afterthought in your life. He's just trivialized. The market is more important to them right now. That's what it looks like for there to be religious leaves in your life void of a heart that actually loves God. So, so let's take a moment to press this down. One of the ways that you can know if you've got a lot of religious leaves but no heart, that you, you're really leafy but no spiritual life, well, one of the ways that shows itself is by God being trivialized in our life by God being really small and insignificant. Okay, now hear me here. It's not that you don't like God. It's just that you can't really find time for God. It's just he he never kind of moves his way into the center place of your life. But it's not that you don't like him. You actually kind of like him, but the God you like is just this really small, insignificant God. He's not center stage in your life. You've effectively moved him out to the edges of your life. See, that's what it looks like culturally right now to do the exact same thing. It's just, we've got a picture of God and we actually like that picture. It's just God on our own terms. It's God that's very insignificant, God that's not very weighty. It's a God that doesn't really alter your life. It's a God that's not gonna get in the way of your plans for your life. It's not gonna get in the way of how you wanna spend your money, how you're gonna do your marriage, how you're gonna raise your kids, how you're gonna do your life. It's just a God that doesn't get in the way of all that. You like him, he's just not that significant. So can we just take a moment here and just ask the question. Let me just cut it to its core and ask it like this. Is Jesus important to you? Is he important to you? Let me just cut it right to the core. What Jesus is addressing in the people of Israel is this. They've got all of this religious activity, but here is the truth. Jesus is not important to them. Everything else is important to them. Is Jesus important to you? You know how you know if he's important? On Tuesday when your life falls apart, Jesus means something in that moment. When you have a difficult phone call on a Wednesday, Jesus means something in that moment. When you're having a marital problem on Friday, Jesus means something in that moment of your life. He's not an afterthought. He's not on the peripheral edge of your life. He is right in the center of everything. And the thing that I so worry about for you and I is that we live in a culture who has made normal Christianity a God that's on the peripheral edge. And that is the exact version of like relating to God that Jesus is condemning here. It's the reason that he is turning over tables. That sort of of religiosity But but trivializing God deep in your heart, that sort of a way of relating to God is what Jesus is condemning here. It does you no good when all accounts are settled. So let me just ask this again. Seriously, don't pretend. Just honestly ask yourself the question. Is Jesus important to you? And if he's not, that means something. Jesus is saying you're going to be the fig tree that withers away to its roots for all eternity. Here's scene number three. Scene number one, Monday morning, cursing the fig tree, showing that the people of Israel are very religious, but they don't have a heart. They're missing the substance. They're missing a deep, genuine, faith, love of God, hope and trust in God. They're missing that. Scene number two in the temple is showing us an expression of what leaves without fruit looks like, trivializing God. But now we get to the third scene. This is Tuesday morning. After Jesus cleans the temple, he goes back to Bethany and he sleeps He comes back to Jerusalem on Tuesday morning and they pass the exact same fig tree. And here's what you see in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed just yesterday has withered. And Jesus answered them, and this is the point of the passage have faith in God. That's what the passage is after. That's what Jesus is after. Don't just do the religious external things. Put your faith in Jesus. Receive Jesus. Allow grace to totally re-alter and reshape your heart to where you actually have a deep, abiding, genuine love for Jesus. That is what Jesus is after. On the day when all accounts are settled and the leaves are wiped away, this is what he is looking for. Faith, hope, trust in Jesus. That's the fruit that's what he's after. Now, here comes the question. How, how do we know if that sort of fruit is present? How do we know that? And Jesus is going to end by showing us two evidences of, of that sort of fruit in our life, of a deep, genuine love of Jesus. Two evidences of that. And here comes the first one. He's going to show us in verses 23 and 24 that the fruit of faith The fruit of like a deep, genuine love of Jesus, the fruit of that is expressed through a vibrant prayer life, a faith-filled prayer life. So look at it in verse 23 and 24. He goes on to say this, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he asks will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. See, he's showing us here that here's the connection. Here is what, under the the religious leaves of our lives, here's what here's what it looks like when we have a deep, genuine, abiding love for Jesus. It shows itself, expresses itself in a vibrant, faith-filled prayer life. So just ask yourself the question: is, Is prayer vibrant in your life? Is it vibrant? Like it's, it's Monday and something happens. Do you run to God in prayer? It's Tuesday, are you thinking about God in relationship with God, pouring your heart out to God? Is there intimacy with you and God expressed through prayer? See, this is what the sort of faith that Jesus is looking for, this deep and abiding love of Jesus. This is what it looks like, this communion with God through prayer. And it's faith-filled prayer. It's, it's prayer that, that actually takes Jesus at his word here, that we should pray believing so is that present in your life? That sort of a prayer life. Are you a person that when you hit a brick wall on Tuesday, your impulse is to keep headbutting the wall through your own activity, or do you turn to God in prayer? Like, do you have that sort of a vibrant prayer life going? Okay, now I can't read and and mention verses twenty three and verse twenty four without clarifying a few things. So let me just take a, a few moments here to to give the picture of of these two verses together. So on on one side, I want you to feel in verses 23 and 24 what Jesus is saying. I want you to feel it deep in your bones. He is looking at us and he is saying this. Sons and daughters of mine, my people, if you will have faith in me, that will connect your prayers to the unlimited power of God in your life. It will do that. Faith connects your praying to a God who is all powerful, can do anything. The Bible says with him, nothing is impossible. Praying in faith connects you to a God like that. And so this passage is meant to help us feel deep in our bones that when we pray in faith, things can happen. Miraculous things can happen. And, you know, we, we've been um, encouraging all of our church family to develop their top five. Five people in their life that are far from God that they're going to begin praying for. Asking God to work in and rescue and redeem and do all of those sorts of things. And so when we're thinking about those top five, even if they appear to be so far down the road of sin, here is what this passage should show us. That we should be praying with extraordinary faith, knowing that we have a God who not only can save sinners, but loves to save them. We should be praying with faith like that, fully expecting God to answer our prayer. Okay, now here is the other thing I want to say about these two verses, though. And we need to listen to this very carefully. Contrary to what many Christians would believe and many pastors preach, namely those who are in the prosperity gospel, that whole crowd, that it's, you know, you name it, you claim it, you believe it, and you're going to get it. That crowd of people. Re- contrary to what they believe, this is not all the Bible says about prayer. So I want you to feel this, deep in your bones, pray in faith. But I want you to know this is not the only thing the Bible says about prayer and why it is that God would or wouldn't answer prayer. So I want you to picture this hypothetical scene. Picture that you have cancer and you're praying like crazy for terminal cancer, but God isn't healing your cancer. See, here is what a person in the prosperity gospel who just takes this on prayer as if there is nothing else in the Bible that that addresses why it is that God would or wouldn't answer prayer. They take this verse right here and take it to unbiblical places. So they would look at you in the midst of praying for healing, but God not answering it. And they would say this to you. Here's the reason that God is not answering it because you don't have enough faith. So if you'll just get enough faith, then God will do it. Now, I just wanna say this as kindly but as bluntly as I can. That is such poor counsel and unbiblical counsel to a person in that moment. It's ridiculous. Here would be a much better way to address that situation would be to look at a person and say this. It might be a lack of faith. Let's just start there. It might be. Man, let's pray believing that God can. And that he loves to answer the prayers of his sons and daughters. So it might be a lack of faith, but that's not the only thing the Bible says about why our prayers might not be answered. 1 Peter 3, 7 says if you're a husband and you're treating your wife, you know, you're being a jerk to your wife, your prayers aren't going to be answered. So maybe husbands in the room need to feel that deep in our bones too, right? The Bible's going to say if we're in willful rebellion against God and we're unrepentant in that sin, that can block our prayers from being answered. But sometimes, and listen to this, sometimes it's just the good providence of God in our life that keeps our prayers from being answered. Sometimes it's just that God has other plans and he sees the entire picture. And his ways are bigger than our ways and higher than our ways. And he knows more than we know. And at some point he's going to show us that his plan is perfect. But sometimes providence blocks it. So think of Jesus in the garden. Jesus in the garden is praying to his father and he's begging his father, if there's any other way for us to do this thing, saving people other than the cross, let's go that way. But you know what happens? Jesus, or the father doesn't respond to him. And that's not because Jesus is lacking faith. It's not because Jesus is sinful. The reason that God did not answer his prayer in that moment is because he has providential plans that don't encompass Jesus being spared from a cross. So see, that can also be a reason our prayers aren't answered. So I want you to feel that and know that, that there's a variety of those, of those reasons. But let me draw back now to the point that Jesus is saying here, here is what the fruit of faith looks like. It looks like vibrant, faith-filled praying. Let me ask you the question, is that present? I mean, can I just beg you, be honest when you look at your life. Is it present? If it's not, it's showing you something, it's telling you something. And here's the last one, and we'll, we'll land the plane here. Verse 25, he's gonna show us that not only is the fruit of faith expressed through a vibrant prayer life, but it's also expressed through forgiveness. The fruit of faith is expressed through when, when Jesus has taken root in our heart, we've got a deep, genuine love for Jesus in our heart, it is expressed by us forgiving other people. So look how he says it in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. Now, I need to clarify one thing here. Jesus is not teaching salvation through forgiveness. That's not what he's teaching. What he is saying is, is that the same sort of faith that saves a person, that same faith is also a forgiving faith. It also produces forgiveness in our lives. Now, there is so much I would love to say, but I do not have time to say this morning about forgiveness. It's a big area. There's a lot of nuances to it. I would love to address um, people when they sin against other people and then weaponize a verse like this and turn around and, and try to get people and say to people and demand that they forgive them right now. I mean, I would just there's so much I would love to say and how ridiculous, by the way, that is, but there's so much I would love to say about it, but I'm just gonna have to cut it straight to its core. Some of us this morning, we have been deeply hurt by other people, maybe even sinned against by other people. And the truth is, it has produced unforgiveness in us. And maybe it's cousins of bitterness and resentment and maybe even hatred in us. And I want you to hear this morning that what you do with being sinned against, what you do with that is saying so much about whether or not your life is full of religious activities or if your life actually has the substance of a love of God in it. Now hear that, what you do with being sinned against has so much to say about whether or not faith in you is genuine faith, saving faith. And so maybe, maybe we could just begin to ask the question this morning, what would it look like for you to begin to unwrap your hand on that unforgiveness and to allow the Spirit of God to begin to deal with that, to begin to work in that area? And you know, forgiveness at its essence is canceling another person's debt. It's saying, I know you have sinned against me and you have accrued debt against me, but I'm going to pay for your debt. I'm not gonna make you pay for it. See, in that way, when you cancel another person's debt, you don't make them pay for it. And you say, you're not going to, I'm gonna pay for it. That's a form of suffering, isn't it? See, forgiveness, is, it's, it's a form of suffering in the Bible. It's saying, I'm going to absorb your sin myself. What you should pay, I'm not going to make you pay, I'm going to pay it. And that takes the Spirit of God in us, doesn't it? It takes the Spirit of God working and animating and and doing that in us. But I'm going to ask you the question, what would it look like for you to begin, the people you have resentment toward, bitterness toward, unforgiveness toward, maybe even in this room, what what would it look like for you to begin to open up your hand and to allow God to deal with that? See, that that forgiveness is an expression of a heart that has been changed by Jesus, loves Jesus, and is abiding in Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's just finish up by uh, looking at verse 18. See verse 18? There's two responses that we could have to a message like this, two responses. One response you see in verse 18. One response is this, and the chief priest and the scribes heard what Jesus said, what he just did. They heard it all, and here was their response. They were seeking a way to destroy him. Here's how you might could summarize that response. They rejected Jesus. Rather than humbly turning to Jesus, they rejected Jesus in this moment. They stiff-armed Jesus. They said, no, we're content with our religious leaves. Don't bother our lives. Don't, Don't get in the way of our plans. So they were content with their religious leaves without a heart being transformed by Jesus. But here is another response, and I wanna plead with you for this one this morning. Rather than rejecting Jesus, can I just plead with you to repent? I think we all need that in light of this sermon this morning. A healthy dose of repentance. See, rather than rejecting Jesus, here's the other option. We can repent. And do you know the good news of the gospel, what it says when we repent? We're taking communion this morning. This is how we're going to end our service. And communion is reminding us of the good news when we turn to God in repentance. Communion reminds us that when we turn to God in repentance, that here is what we find from Jesus. Not judgment, not condemnation. But what we find when we repent to Jesus is grace and mercy and help and hope. That's what we find. Can I just plead with you, it would be so appropriate for us this morning to actually come to God repenting of our sin. Not rejecting, but repenting. And as we take communion, we're going to hold up the bread, and here's what the bread is showing us this this morning. It's reminding us all when we hold up the bread that Jesus' broken body, it was broke for us, for our sin. Jesus was slaughtered for us. And when we dip it in the juice this morning, it's it's a tangible reminder to everyone in the room that his blood was spilled for you, for your sin, to cover your sin, to wash your sin clean. It's reminding us that when we repent, we can find hope and mercy and grace. And can I just implore you to run to Jesus in repentance this morning? And that's what you'll find. Or else if you receive him, Verse 20, and the fig tree is your fate. If we reject Jesus, here is our ultimate fate. Just like the fig tree withers and dies, withers to its root, for all those who reject Jesus, they will wither to their root for all eternity. And it doesn't have to be that way. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.